Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm very excited today to welcome my good friend, the historian John Darman, who also covered politics for Newsweek. So he is the perfect blend of history and understanding of the current day political situation for Words Matter. And we are going to talk about his incredible book called Landslide. And Landslide is a book about the period between John F. Kennedy's assassination and a thousand days until Ronald Reagan was elected as the governor of California. And that era of political crisis and two political landslides, so to speak. And John, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks. The book is great on Audible because of your style, and you really tell a story, and it's vivid, it's fun, it could be adapted Hollywood, I think. Uh, clearly, I'm a very big fan. Let's start from the very beginning, and you introduce LBJ and Ronald Reagan. And where was Reagan on November 22nd, 1963, the day JFK died? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think the sort of standard idea of Reagan is that he had this early young man's Hollywood career uh, where he was a big star in the sort of early pre-World War II period. But then after World War II, he became more and more interested in politics and was sort of slowly inching his way toward there until finally he runs for the governorship of California in 1966. Uh, but if you ask, you know, sort of the, the famous question um, of Ronald Reagan, where were you the day that John F. Kennedy was shot? He's somewhere he's really not supposed to be. He's working on a movie set and he's playing the kind of role that he hated. He's playing the bad guy in this adaptation of a, of a pretty dark Ernest Hemingway story called The Killers. And he's not even like a tough or, you know, strong bad guy. He's this bad boy who's a uh, bad guy who's uh, cuckolded uh, by his wife um, and is sort of disgraced over the course of the movie. And it's the kind of role that Reagan hated and never wanted to take. But he took it because he, it was the only work that he could get. And I think that uh, that sort of, to me, illustrates how fast Reagan's life changes over the period of this thousand days. That's where he starts. And by the end of the thousand days that I write about, he's been elected governor of California. He's the sort of face of this resurgent conservative movement uh, in this country, and he's really about to change politics for the next 50 years. Let's move on to LBJ. You write in the book that LBJ was the total political opposite of Ronald Reagan in his leadership style. And you describe them. One was a rancher down in the muck. The other was a cowboy riding along the ridge. And talk about LBJ as a leader. Well, LBJ is a very particular kind of leader and a particular kind of approach to the presidency. I mean, you guys have worked in politics, and you know that I think people, presidents, typically sort of envy both Ronald Reagan and LBJ. Reagan is sort of the president that they say they want to be, um, and Johnson's the one that they secretly admire most because he's someone who was thought of as being really effective at getting things done. And the LBJ approach to the presidency is to sort of Get your fingertips all over every single thing that has to do with your agenda, big or small. Um, there's a story that I, I like to think about um, with LBJ's chief legislative strategist for a while was a guy named Larry O'Brien, who was a, a legendary Democratic Party operative. Um, and there was one time where O'Brien was up on the hill late at night um, trying to bring home a bill for the White House. And he failed. They came up short. And he thought to himself, oh, should I call the president? And he said, well, it's the middle of the night. I don't really want to deal with this right now. He went and got something to eat, um, and he, he let the time sort of pass till morning. And he finally, you know, gets up the courage to call LBJ and tell him that, you know, they, they came up short. And LBJ's first question is, when did this happen? Um, and O'Brien, you know, told him. And LBJ said, why didn't you why didn't you call me when this happened? And O'Brien said, oh, I don't know. And LBJ said, when you're bleeding up on that hill, I want to bleed with you. Um, and that's sort of the LBJ approach 
to the presidency. You know, everything is about being there in the moment. Um, that would never be Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, Reagan, during his presidency, was known for um, for enjoying a, a good night's sleep. Um, the story I always think about there is um, there's a story that when when President Reagan and President Carter were meeting during the the transition, Carter was concerned that Reagan didn't understand how serious the job was and what was involved in it. And he said, "You know, you and I have both been governors, but this is a very different kind of thing. Being the president, there's a man from the CIA." who comes to brief you at 7 o'clock in the morning. And Reagan said, he comes at 7 a.m.? And Carter said, yes. And Reagan said, well, he's going to have to wait a long time. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, these he are— was these still are, on California time. Exactly, yeah. I mean, but it was—the funny thing is Reagan was actually a much—and I, I get into this in the book. He was a much harder worker than he let on. And I think, you know, you have to, you have to think about him as an actor, um, where the guys who, who had to audition and really had to show that it was tough— to get there were the ones who weren't that good. Reagan thought it was you were supposed to sort of make it all look effortless. And that was really his approach to the presidency generally, was to sort of set big goals and, you know, have these sort of stirring images and then let other people sweat the small stuff. And that, you know, you have in Johnson and Reagan, I think, these two really different approaches to the presidency where one is like – because Johnson was the other way. He would really exaggerate how hard he worked. Um, there was a moment once early in his presidency where Jack Valenti, who was one of his closest aides, um, got a call um, at night from a reporter. And Valenti was out of the office. Um, and Johnson answered the call. And he said, oh, I'm answering Jack's calls tonight. He's away. You know, the idea is he's always got his finger on the pulse. And that's what he wanted people to think. It's odd because on the one hand, that's Donald Trump secretly yeah. calling reporters and really wanting to do the whole John Barron press secretary act all over again and managing his own press. But then again, on the other hand, he is more of a Ronald Reagan detached. He tries to, you know, act like he is above it all. And so do you how do you see Donald Trump's leadership style looking at the two of those presidents? It's, it's a great point. I mean, I think about the sort of lesson that you get when you look at these two different approaches to the presidency is that either can work and a president just sort of has to know himself or maybe someday herself well enough to sort of understand which one works for him or her. And I think the problem with Trump is that he sort of imagines himself – I mean one of several problems with Trump uh, – is that he imagines himself as someone who can do it all. He can do both. He can be the wheeler dealer. He has this great – image of himself as that. But he also wants to be Reagan. He wants to be the guy who sort of rises above and doesn't doesn't worry about stuff. And I mean, and I think there's a lot more similarities between Trump and Johnson um, than you might have thought. I mean, Johnson certainly had a whole array of policy and interpersonal knowledge that Trump never had and never will have. But he was paranoid like Trump in a lot of ways. And as you suggest, he was Really obsessed with his press conference uh, coverage in a way that uh, will, will be you know familiar to anyone who's who's alive right now. And it was it was a similar sort of thought. I mean, Johnson was convinced that the press treated him really unfairly in comparison to his predecessor. In Johnson's case, of course, that was uh, that was John F. Kennedy, and you know he couldn't get over it. He thought that the press was really out to get him. And and in Johnson's case, they sort of were. Um, the Kennedys were very much a presence um, in the early days of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, and they were they were spreading all sorts of bad talk among reporters about Johnson. And reporters were then reporting back on Johnson to the Kennedys. Um, so Johnson had some some right to be paranoid, but he also I think suffered from something that Trump suffers from, which is he didn't understand the difference between when you're president and when you're not. Johnson had always had really good press coverage when he was in the Senate as the majority leader. Because what he understood about the Senate was it's this big, complicated, and often quite boring place. And all you really need to do if you're a senator um, to get good press coverage is to give people an exciting story. Um, and that's, you know, very similar to Trump in New York. You know, he just made himself accessible and he was incredibly quotable. And so he got all this sort of adulatory press coverage. Well, when you become president, like everything you do is inherently interesting. And so there's a much higher bar. And Johnson had a really hard time understanding why he couldn't just expect the same kind of, you know, pleasant coverage from the press that he'd been accustomed to. And I think that Trump, you know, 
will never get over that as well. He used to always get such good treatment from the press. Why do they hate him so much now? And going through this book, another key contrast with LBJ and Donald Trump is how massively productive LBJ was with consequential, far-reaching legislation. And you go through the list, Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Medicare, Great Society, but it was somewhat his undoing almost that he was so successful. Yeah, I, th- I think a-, a piece that LBJ had that Donald Trump does not have um, was the idea, they, like Trump, he wanted to be great and he wanted people to adore him. Um, I mean, he, you know, he wrote his name all over everything. <laughs> he liked he liked nice suits. He liked people to sort of, um, you know, worship him. Even he the had, dogs were LBJ. Exactly. Yeah. He uh, <laughs> he really he really liked um, any kind of adulation that he could receive. He he was like Trump addicted to the telephone in part because when you're president, people, people call you up all the time to tell you how great you are and how misunderstood you are and all that. Um, so he wanted he had the same desire for sort of acclamation and and greatness that Trump had. But I think what LBJ understood was that to be great, he could be great by doing things that changed people's lives. And that that was a really sincere belief that came from his earliest childhood, that the way that you achieved greatness in politics was to do things for you know millions of people that you would never even no, and that was the sort of big driver um, from the moment he he ascends to the presidency um, after John F. Kennedy's assassination. He has this idea that he's sort of coming after in, coming in in this horrible circumstance. He's he's replacing a man who's already a legend, and the only way that he's ever going to be able to achieve the kind of greatness he wants is to get a lot done, and he does it very quickly. Let's talk about the 1966 midterm elections. Do you see any parallels with 2018? So the 1966 uh, midterm elections, which I, I write about in, in the book, um, are, you know, every midterm election, we who, who cover politics say this is the biggest election ever, um, and just which we then say two years later about the presidential election. And in most midterm elections, they were ne- not necessarily that important. 1966 is, I think, one of these midterm elections that you can point to and say this is really the beginning of a huge change. Um, it is uh, remarkably the moment that that Ronald Reagan bursts on the scene um, as the governor of California, elected with a majority of, of nearly a million votes um, in a state that, that the Democrats had easily um, carried four years before. And it's in the context of a much bigger uh, Republican wave that really marks the end of Johnson's um, progressive ascendancy. And I think what you what you started to see in that election was a shift in the way that voters' allegiances worked. You had um, suburban voters across the country um, who, you know, in, in previous generations had been part of Democratic families. They had maybe lived in cities and sort of voted along with Democratic machines that were that had gotten the sense that the Democratic Party no longer represented them, um, and the the these new suburban voters were, were opening their eyes to the Republican Party, and they would really stay there um, for, for generations. And I think what we've just seen in this midterm election is perhaps the severing of that relationship, perhaps permanently, of the Republican Party from those same or the, or the children and grandchildren of some of those suburban voters. So I think that, that that really speaks to how consequential this election we've just been through could be. Well, and it's easy to become frustrated with the pace of human progress but consider that LBJ was worried about white suburban voters fleeing because of the Voting Rights Act, because of the Civil Rights Act. And then this last election, we saw suburban voters in Orange County flee, perhaps because of Donald Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, in part, on the caravans and on migrants and on immigration. That's a, that's a, a really good point, which actually I hadn't focused on in that way. And in, in that respect... You can see that this is a this is a hopeful story um, because 50 years later, racism is just is not acceptable in the way that it was in the 1960s. And let's play a little bit of the LBJ joint session address on voting rights. And this was March 1965. We cannot. We must not. Refuse to protect the right of every American to vote in every election that he may desire to participate in. 
And we ought not, and we cannot, and we must not wait another eight months before we get a bill. We have already waited a hundred years and more, and the time for waiting is gone. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. So what do you take from that speech in 1965 and then where we are today in light of what we saw with voting and possible voting suppression, especially in Florida and Georgia, and the difficulty that so many Americans still have exercising their constitutional right to play a role in democracy? I mean, I'll admit, the book came out um, in 2014, um, and when I was I was working on it, um, Lyndon Johnson's Voting Rights Act and his speech uh, to the joint session of Congress about voting rights um, seemed much more like history than it does today. This idea of, you know, state-sanctioned voter suppression um, is much more with us today, and maybe it was in a way that I didn't even focus on when I when I was working on the book. And I think you you know that moment in the Johnson presidency for me is sort of Lyndon Johnson at his his greatest. Um, he Johnson was not generally a great speaker. Um, his speeches tended to be like really flowery. Again, he was sort of self conscious about John F. Kennedy, so he would make his speeches like really wordy, and he delivered them uncomfortably. And that speech really sticks out because it's such a great speech. And that's because he had moral clarity and moral clarity sort of, you know, writes itself in a sense. Um, Richard Goodwin, who's, who's a, who recently died, um, is, was a person who wrote that speech, you know, described the sort of real clarifying experience that having to, you know, address the nation after um, he was speaking after, after the terrible scene in Selma, Alabama, and how that how that sort of made the writing easy. And, and you feel that in Johnson. And I think that's really a key element we were talking before about what Johnson um, and Trump had in common. The biggest difference is that Johnson had this incredible capacity for empathy. Um, and that, that was something that he used um, toward, to, toward, to great success over and over again. He used it legislatively in terms of being able to understand um, what different members of Congress needed, what they wanted, what they feared, and he was able to sort of apply that as you know, like in a master chess game strategy. Um, he was able to do that with his staff. He understood what it was like to be a staffer in a White House, I mean, or to be a member of a cabinet. He could put himself in their shoes, and so that sort of made him made him treat some of them better than than he might have at times. Um, but most important, he was able to sort of put himself in the shoes of people who had a lot. A lot uh, less than he had. And he was able to speak to people's real life experience on on the issue of, of race. Um, and you see that in, in the voting rights speech. And that's something that to me seems so lacking, obviously in the president of the United States today, but really in a lot of our politicians. And Trump is more often compared to Ronald Reagan because of the background in Hollywood and both are performers of sorts, you could say. What, though, do you make of comparing Donald Trump to Ronald Reagan? Yeah, I think superficially it's a it's a pretty easy comparison because, um, you know, Reagan came into politics late in life. Um, he was in his in his 50s when he ran for the first time and he had had this career um, as someone who was who was outside of politics as a performer and as an entertainer. Um, and I think that Trump would like to see himself as sort of a Reagan like figure because Reagan 
um, was known for having these great um, sort of images and this sort of central casting, to use a Trumpian term, um, image of the presidency. But I think if you dig down to who they were as people, they couldn't have been more different. Reagan was not someone who was ever really capable of cruelty, I mean, or was very rarely capable of cruelty in person. And he wanted people to feel as comfortable around him as they could. And he really didn't like anything that seemed that seemed interpersonally um, mean. He was also, I think, just much more comfortable in his own skin than, than Trump was. Um, and that really was what was so important for what we were talking about before in terms of his approach to the presidency, in terms of, you know, sort of setting the big goals and letting other people um, sweat the small stuff. Reagan was really used to that. He had been an actor where if you're an actor, you're constantly putting your your fate into other people's hands. You need your agent to be looking out for you. You need the director to be looking out for you. You need the studio boss to be looking out for you. You need the lighting guy to be looking out for you. You need the makeup person to be looking out for you. All those things. And you really sort of have to put your trust that other people are going to worry about those things. And you can focus on being the star. And he really sort of actually used that approach to the presidency. Um, you know, think about one of the reasons uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency was so successful was he had probably the greatest chief of staff ever in James Baker, um, who was a very strong and empowered uh, chief of staff. And Reagan, you know, if he were using a sort of Trumpian loyalty test in staffing his White House, never would have considered Baker in a million years. James Baker had run the campaign of his chief rival in the 1980 primaries, George H.W. Bush. And before that, he'd actually run the successful Gerald Ford 1976 convention effort that kept Reagan from winning the nomination that year. So, you know, and if you Trump would look at someone with that resume and say never in a million years. And, you know, how do we how do we make sure they never work in Washington again? Reagan says, I'm going to give that person the most important job in my White House and I'm going to give him power to um, to sort of execute my agenda beyond really most chiefs of staff um, in history. And Reagan was able to do that because he sort of wasn't insecure about who's really out to get me, who's on my side. He said, OK, I'm the president and these people are going to do what I tell them. One of the things I want to go back to is um, obviously your book covers that thousand-day period between November 22, 1963 and, as Elise said, the election of Ronald Reagan in that midterm election as governor of California. I was introduced to this era in studying history by a, a book called A Thousand Days by mm. Arthur Schlesinger, a famous Harvard historian who JFK had brought into his fold to write this. Now, I – no criticism of the late, great Mr. Schlesinger, but your thousand days that you cover was far more eventful in legislation, in political upheaval and turmoil, in – on November 22, 1963, the South was solidly democratic. Um, you had the New Deal coalition intact. You had all those things. And by the end, is that sort of seismic change – we're still dealing with that, aren't we? Yeah. In a very real way. Um, talk a little bit about – Johnson as a politician, he clearly knew and I think he said it that I lost the South for a generation, probably more. Why did he make that decision to go as aggressively as he did when he had to be aware of anybody who ever served in that job, the political consequences in the Senate, in the House, with the, with the constituents? Talk about the motivation for moving that quickly, that fast and the ramifications of it. Well, you know, Johnson's a, a psychologically complex character. Um, so anytime he says something that's sort of a categorical statement, you have to like dig into it a little bit. So that that famous line of, you know, I've lost the South for a generation, um, which gets quoted a lot as being quite prescient, was quite prescient. But it was also, I think, reveals Johnson sort of would, would make these statements about, oh, God, the, the, I have to do this really impossible thing. And then he would think secretly, and I'm going to do it. So when he was saying, I've lost the South for a generation, there was a part of him that was thinking, but maybe I'll be able to figure out how to keep the South there. Um, he was motivated by these sort of warring impulses between the impossible thing and wouldn't it be great if I could actually pull it off? And that was what sort of drove him to get so much done so quickly. I think, um, and I write about this in the book, that an underappreciated element of what sort of did Johnson in was not the actual legislative agenda. 
It was the way that he talked about it. He, you know, brought through all this really important legislation that that you know transformed in a lot of ways people's relationship with their government. But he made it sound like it was going to be quite easy and that everything was going to be perfect. Um, so you know, he wins uh, election a year after he assumes the presidency in 1964 in the largest popular vote landslide in American history. And shortly thereafter, he goes out um, to uh, the White House Christmas tree lighting ceremony, and he says, these are the most hopeful times since Christ was born in Bethlehem, you know, which... (laughs) Ooh, talk about setting expectations. Exactly. You know, sort of basic political calculus, you know, if you don't don't bring back the Messiah at that point, like, you've failed. That's where the the Beatles got the thought from that they're bigger than Jesus. There you go. Yeah. And and, and, I mean, and he kept doing stuff like that. So at his his inauguration the next month, the programs, and this is also quite Trumpian now that you think about it, said... um, all that has come before in our glorious history is but a prelude to the great society. And, you know, this, this fits with, with your podcast, Words Matter. Um, if, if you're making these grand claims to people and then their lived experience doesn't line up with it, that creates a sense of alienation that I think reverberates for generations. And I think that, you know, I, I spell out in the book how I think that worked. It created this opening for the narrative on the right that um, government has made all these problems that it's not delivering on. Maybe we can solve a lot of problems by getting government out of people's lives. And the two parties were really stuck in that um, for for 50 years. In a certain sense, they are still stuck in that. Trump has taken it in a new direction. Um, but but in part, the success of Donald Trump was, was appealing to people by saying, you know, this old debate that we've had um, about government is 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 meaningless, and I'm gonna t- I'm gonna talk to your real life experience, and that's why um, he was able to have some of the power that he did. And Ronald Reagan, towards the end of the Thousand Days, gave a famous speech, a time for choosing. And let's listen to a little bit of that speech because the contrast is almost extreme. I would say, you and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This this is the meaning in the phrase of Barry Goldwater, peace through strength. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Reagan sounds a bit more dire than the hopeful tone of LBJ at the Christmas tree lighting. Yeah, and one of the things I found actually um, in, in researching the book was the same night that that speech aired on television, Johnson was getting to his most utopian point in the campaign. I mean, all politicians get a little carried away at the end of a campaign, but Johnson was really starting to go in that direction. He said, this is going to be the time of peace on earth and goodwill among men. So you really see there if in the split screen, and, and you know this is not something people typically do with Reagan and Johnson, but if you look at what Johnson was doing at that moment and what Reagan was doing, you see the two narratives that the parties are going to use um, being experimented with for the next 50 years, and they're really sort of locked in there. What are those narratives today in the Donald Trump era and in the Democratic era of kind of a maybe sort of blue wave, but no one's really sure who's leading the party and what the Democratic Party's message is. I I think that a lesson from the Johnson era is that the Democrats get into trouble when they make big promises for government without admitting that government can sometimes make mistakes. Um, and And the sort of luck that they have had in the last 50 years with with the Republican Party being associated as the anti-government party is that they've never really been pushed on that, on why we should, you know, do big government should try and do big things, even though it does make mistakes. And I think, you know, as much as Trump has changed our politics, we, we 
as as we talk about the Democratic primary um, in 2020, that rhetoric is all quite familiar and similar. It's, you know, oh, if we just had Medicare for all or free college tuition and and there's a sort of reluctance to get into, well, you know, do those things, what are what are the implications of that and how do we make that work? And, and any time a politician is sort of opens up any of that nuance, there is a, a tendency to say, well, you're not you're not pure enough. You don't believe strongly enough. So we're really, I think, still stuck in that. Well, and that's something Steve calls free college tuition, the Democratic version of the wall. It's, uh, you know, Donald Trump saying that this wall is going to be built when we all know the wall is not going to be built and Mexico is not going to pay for it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that an unfortunate lesson that some Democrats seem to have taken from the Trump ascendancy is that they were too grounded in facts before and that they needed to make, you know, more set bigger goals uh, for for uh, government and then and then do their best to try and make it there. But sort of just make it clear to people what you stand for is more important than actually being realistic in what you talk to. I don't I'm not sure that, you know, the history of the 20th century really shows that that that's the way to do it. I mean, FDR well, this is something I wanted to ask you about because you've been working on your next book, which is a history of FDR's life and political rise. Yeah. So talk to us about the lessons Democrats can learn from the most successful Democratic president in American history, I would argue. Yeah. I mean, FDR and, you know, we were talking before about Lyndon Johnson and and Ronald Reagan. The, a thing that they have in common is Reagan, uh, Roosevelt, FDR – was both of their shared hero. Um, when when Roosevelt died, Johnson was in the Congress, and he he broke into tears and he said he was like a daddy to me. Um, and and Reagan used to uh, listen to FDR on the radio and sort of um, imitate his his uh, him holding the cigarette holder and sort of he, that's where Reagan got the idea of like how great it would be to be the president of the United States to have these people that you never even saw moved by your words in this incredibly powerful way. So, at, you and know, I just turned over for a moment in that speech, Elise was talking about that we played that language, which I think Ronald Reagan did write a lot of that himself. Yeah. And that language, the rendezvous with destiny is from FDR. Is from FDR. Exactly. I mean, I think that Reagan, um, Reagan unfairly in his presidency was seen as, as as trying to dismantle the New Deal when, in fact, what he was actually trying to do was dismantle the Great Society. I mean, FDR was a hero of Reagan's till the end. I think in terms of what Democrats can learn from FDR, it's exactly this point about, um, you know, I don't know that FDR is the most successful progressive president of the 20th century of, of, in American history. And any Democrat who could, who could be mentioned in the same sentence as FDR has done a great job uh, with their presidency. But if you look at FDR's campaign in 1932 when he ran for president, um, he wasn't getting specific about exactly what the New Deal was going to be at all. I mean, in fact, he spent a lot of that campaign talking about how really the economic situation was so dire that the government needed to pay attention to its deficit spending and massive federal spending was not going to be a, a good idea. Well, then he turns around, obviously, and produces the New Deal. Oh, imagine um, a politician who campaigns on <laughs> cutting the budget, cutting the deficit. <laughs> right, turns exactly. turns into a big spender. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that you know it's it sort of shows the the futility of of saying like oh you know let's let's make sure that they've got all the right policies lined up in the primary so that we know what what the message is and the, and then they can put that program into action. FDR was really good at sort of understanding the political moment and and putting forward policies that could do big things with with the opportunity that he had. And I think when when you look at okay so. What it, was it about FDR that made him able to get uh, the New Deal accomplished? It wasn't his sort of, you know, long an attachment to those policies. It was this, this sense in him that, that, that people got that this was someone who was speaking genuinely um, and could understand them and, um, and, and, was, and meant what he was saying. If you think about, you know, the line, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, that's a line that a lot of politicians would have a really hard time pulling off. Um, if you think about it, in, in in March of 1933, people in March of 1933 had a lot to fear. I think, have, I think Jonathan Alter calls it inspired nonsense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's listen but, to a little of that speech just because it is such an incredible piece of American rhetoric. So first of all, 
let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. That was a tough speech to pull off, and boy, did FDR pull it off. As a presidential historian, what do you think is the most important character trait of a successful president? I think that looking at a a president's life, their life story before they come to the presidency and understanding what's a moment where they were challenged and struggled and how did they deal with that adversity is a really important question to ask. Um, so, you know, I started looking at FDR during the 2016 election, part because, you know, FDR was a political genius. And it seemed to me, you know, as this Trump phenomenon was happening, that we lacked political geniuses. There was no if there if, if only we'd had some political genius to stand up to this person, this phenomenon could have been stopped. And it also seemed to me to be a good way of getting at who FDR was as a person, uh, because there was a, there's a lot of, of artifice with FDR. And when you try and peel it back and say, OK, he, who was he as a politician? Where did his political genius come from? You get it sort of the, the, the inner inner life by understanding where his ambition came from. The big discovery for me was that FDR's genius was not something he was just born with by and large. It was something that was made. And it was made by the experience of having polio. I mean, so I think a lot of people know that FDR had polio, but they may not realize that he had a whole career in politics before he ever got sick. Um, He got stricken with polio on Campobello Island um, at the age of 39. Um, And before that, he had been uh, the Democrats' vice presidential candidate in 1920. And he had a career in politics that was based very much on a couple of things, like his his last name, which was a big brand in politics at that time, um, obviously, and his his physical appearance. He was a very handsome guy and his sort of athletic, graceful manner. Um, he got put on that ticket in 1920 because he impressed people so much with the way that he jumped over rows of chairs to wrestle uh, the, Tammany of Tam- the, the standard of Tammany Hall from the New York State, uh, the standard of New York State from the Tammany Hall thugs. And, you know, so he he gets stricken with polio and overnight he loses all of those things, all of these things that had been at the center of his political identity. But he still wants to be president and he has to figure out a way to do that. And it's really in that struggle that his political genius is born. He develops skills that he'd never had before. He'd never been a particularly great orator up to that moment because he hadn't had to. But because he's now limited in his mobility, he, he develops a new speaking style. He develops strategic ability that he'd never had before. Um, and I think more deeply, he, he has an understanding of suffering that he had never had before in his life. The, the bad things that had happened to FDR up to that point were mostly, you know, losing elections and getting bullied in boarding school. And when he gets sick, he understands suffering, and that opens his eyes up to what it's like for millions of other people to have suffering. And he understands also that he can achieve greatness by doing something to alleviate other people's suffering. And really, there's a direct line from his own struggle to being the person who can say and mean it, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And you talked in the first two um, presidents that you analyzed, LBJ and Ronald Reagan, to a large extent, about this gift of empathy that you're describing in FDR and how important that was both as a politician but also as a president, as a leader, as a policymaker. Talk about that sort of one quality that unites all three of them in, in, in a sense. I think that you know, maybe maybe Reagan's empathy, the demonstration of it was questionable but I think that the um, the execution of it in, in, in a lot of cases was uh, was there. He, de- he definitely had it. He, he certainly had it. I mean, actually, an interesting thing about um, Reagan and FDR both is they were they were much better at making a connection with people that they didn't know and maybe would never even see um, than they were with with people in their own family. Um, I describe in landslide the scene of, of Reagan um, at giving the speech at his at his son Michael's high school graduation. And he's greeting and he, he gives the commencement address and he's greeting the graduates afterward in their cap and gown. And, and Michael um, approaches the president. And Ronald Reagan puts out his hand and says, hello, I'm Ronald Reagan. 
And Michael Reagan says, Dad, it's me, Mike. You know, there was um, there was an, a, a sort of barrier there that didn't exist when he was dealing with, with total strangers. People could feel with him when he spoke to them um, over television um, or early in his career over the radio, like he knew what they were feeling. And that was very much true of FDR as well. And it's not something that you can that you can fake. I think that FDR and Reagan did have a genuine concern for the common man. And they had this sort of deep, you know, you could say it's simplistic in a lot of ways, but it was a real belief that they could make people's lives better and that that was worth getting up every morning and trying to do. And Donald Trump claims to be out for the forgotten man. How would you rank Donald Trump's skill at appealing to working class voters? I think he has a great skill at entertaining um, working class voters. uh, And he has a great under, I mean, clearly he has an understanding of their grievances that that most people, you know, working in politics today don't have, or at least didn't have um, until until very recently. And so I don't I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say that Trump lacks political talent because obviously he has it. I think that what we've seen over the course of his presidency so far is where again and again he's failed to to sort of rise to the occasion. You know, whether it's after one of the mass shootings or Charlottesville um, or or moments like that. And I think that's because he's never able for very long to keep himself out of it. And I think that Reagan and FDR particularly had a sort of absorbing empathy that allowed them to focus on other people's struggles. And and even though they were very self-interested and in some ways narcissistic men, they were able to put themselves aside for a while while other people while they were thinking about other people's needs. And I think that's not something that Trump has. I have a question that is a combination FDR and Trump question. You spoke about how FDR's struggles with polio impacted his political awareness and his empathy and his ultimate achievements as president. The press did not report at the time that FDR was suffering from polio and that he was disabled. And something I frequently hear in focus groups with Trump supporters about the media coverage of Donald Trump is how unfair the media coverage is. And they cite FDR and polio and how the press didn't report it. They cite JFK and his mistresses and how it wasn't reported. And The argument being, as presented by some of Donald Trump's strongest supporters, that the media knows better and should not magnify some of Donald Trump's false statements, that it's not Donald Trump's fault for uttering the statements. It's the media's fault for reporting factually what Donald Trump is saying. What do you make of that? Well, um, a couple of things. One, obviously, it's true to a certain extent that F- that the media or the press kept the reality of FDR's polio from the public um, during his presidency, um, and that FDR made great efforts to sort of keep the reality of his his illness secret. People in voters in 1932 knew that FDR had had polio, and that he still had in their um, in their minds a sort of lingering disability from it. They they didn't they weren't aware that he couldn't walk on his own, but they knew that he had that he had trouble. But I think they think they thought he was it was mainly uh, behind him. But I mean, FDR's political rivals and adversaries still tried to exploit it. Um, so in the nineteen thirty two Democratic convention, Al Smith, who who hated FDR at that point and wanted to become the Democratic nominee, basically just to take it away from FDR, made a big show of inviting reporters out with him on the golf course to show how, you know, sort of virile he was in contrast with with the sickly FDR. I I think that if FDR were running today, we would know every single thing about his polio um, and about what the experience of the illness had been and what the sort of different, you know, approaches to recovery he had he had gone through were. Um, there would be, you know, long TV specials about it. The New York Times would send their medical editor to, to sort of discuss, you know, the reality of his condition. It's just a very different um, media landscape. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think that the president's misstatements um, and, under, you know, 
getting at what does the president say and is it, is it true or not is a sort of basic obligation of journalists. Another quality I wanted to talk about that I think that links FDR, Johnson and Ronald Reagan but not necessarily the current occupant is optimism. One of the things I got to do when I worked in the White House for President Bush was brief him for a television interview he did with the History Channel with Frank Sesno that was going to be put in the can after President Reagan passed away. And it was fascinating mm. to be able to sit for a couple of hours with George W. Bush and talk about it. And he would always, you know, despite what people think, he read every briefing book. He prepared he read extensively. Extensively. In terms he, of history. And he would quiz you when you would start to brief him. He'd say, all right, bottom line. Because he wanted to know if the bottom line he got was the same bottom line that, right. you, that you had. And I just said, look, Mr. President, I think if you study it, it's Ronald Reagan's essential quality was optimism. If you read that letter... When he announced to the American people he had Alzheimer's, he still believed that our best days were ahead of us. Mm -hmm. He still believed in the shining city on a hill. And I remember watching President Bush internalize that and think about that. And I had made the case that every person who'd run for the office in the modern era had been the more optimistic candidate. And it was even a tough part in that discussion when I had to say, including, sir, with all due respect, in 1992 with Bill Clinton and your dad. Right. And he agreed. But the point being is that has been – was blown away in 2016 and talk about the difference between that optimistic leadership of the Reagans, the FDRs, the LBJs and what we are dealing with today. Yeah. I mean it's certainly the thing that I still have had the hardest time wrapping my head around. Um, you know, watching Trump's convention speech in 2016 and the sort of dark vision that came out of that. Well, the reaction. inaugural – Exactly. Both of those. The darkest inaugural in history. American carnage. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think about people like who do what what I do of sort of writing about history going, well, God, things must have been really bad at that moment in time, which like then if you look at what was on the front page of the papers, like it's not really doesn't line up. I must Um, say I also and and it hasn't been verified, but I do tend to agree with George W. Bush's reported assessment of (laughs) – Trump's inaugural, <laughs> that was some weird shit <laughs> because it was. Yeah, and I mean so I, I don't know. I haven't thought about this, about your point, about have we broken – is that another norm that has been broken, that successful presidents are the ones who can create an optimistic vision? I think that ultimately Trump's – the biggest limitation on Trump has been that that he hasn't been able to to connect with an optimistic vision. And that's why he still has the people who supported him, but he hasn't created um, a new base. And um, and I think that, again, it gets back to every, he, he makes everything ultimately about himself and, and everything has to be about whether or not Donald Trump is being appreciated or Donald Trump is doing well. And I think that, that a, a Reagan um, would have made it about the country and this sort of American story, which he believed in. Um, and I think that's a difference between Trump and Reagan, uh, is that is that Reagan really did believe in the, in the sort of mythical American story. And he believed his own life experience was sort of proof of it, you know, to go from this obscure childhood um, in, in Iowa and Illinois to the presidency of the greatest you know nation on earth. That, that was sort of proof of what America could do. Till the, till the end, and let's just play a clip of Ronald Reagan talking about that shining city on a hill in his farewell address. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. Till the end, Ronald Reagan believed in it. And what does it say? And look, the entire country was founded on an optimistic idea. It was not the reality. It was what we hoped to become. Right. And again, I just I think it's something more Well, and today it feels like Donald Trump only wants that kind of vision for people in states that delivered him electoral votes. Yeah. And and I think it's partly in Trump's case cuz he never really was that bought into the American story. Um, you know, we talk about him as this sort of quintessential New York figure. 
Um, and I think his idea of of America was quite was quite limited. He had this sort of idea of of New York media culture as being the extent of America. So the all of these sort of tropes of of you know what what Reagan could summon summon in this very moving way is is foreign to Trump, and and it's not something that that comes naturally to him, and not something that he really has that much respect for. As you dig into FDR, and and again, I think you're you're right on with that essential quality being the suffering during polio and getting us out of two of the largest, most threatening to our democracy crises of the entire history of our country. What do you think the prospect that we can – Americans will again respond to the leadership of optimism once they've been treated to two for or however many years of the leadership of your fears? Can I beg you to say something hopeful? I, I no, I am genuinely hopeful on this, um, and I think it gets back to that's that's what you know, uh, you know. Not that I'm in a position to advise the Democratic primary electorate, um, but that's that's I think a much more important standard to be thinking about in terms of people who are going to run against Trump than do they meet all of the particular ideological and programmatic litmus tests. It's does this person have a hopeful vision? That inspires people because I think people really want that um, right now. And everything about FDR and his his personal story, but also just his sort of affect, um, emanated that he was able to get people to feel like things were going to be okay. And I think that right now, this is a moment of of great anxiety in this country for for a number of reasons that don't have anything to do with Trump. And so, a, a politician who could speak to our, our hopes. And, and our sort of the optimistic side of our nature, I think, could be incredibly successful now more than, than ever, really. So Democratic Party officials, you would be well served to listen to presidential historian John Darman's advice. And I also want to remind everyone that this is a great book that will educate you about how we came to this moment. It's called Landslide, LBJ and Ronald Reagan at the Dawn of a New America by John Darman. And you can check it out on Audible. And it is a great listen. It is um, amazing. It is beautifully written, beautifully spoken, and uh, a a must must listen. Well, thanks. Uh, This has been really fun. Thanks so much for coming in today. We want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, and we read a lot of them around here, chances are you can find it on Audible. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, or running errands, or on the subway. We put out some important and relevant titles like Steve Kornacki's The Red and the Blue, Tom Ricks's Churchill and Orwell, Born Trump by Emily Jane Fox, Profiles Encouraged by John F. Kennedy, and Columbine by Dave Cullen. All of those titles into the Words Matter Library. And Steve, tell them about our Words Matter special offer. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just six ninety-five a month. That's more than half off the regular price. So get yourself to listening. While you're at it, think about giving the gift of Audible to someone on your list. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. That's audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. Audible, because words matter. That's right. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.